The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book Three, The Wanderer's Curse. Chapter Twelve, in which Astrea returns to the village. It was later that same day when Astrea made the announcement for which they'd all been waiting. We're there, said Astrea. We'll be looking through the gap in no time. I knew that, said Cam. The afternoon sun was brightening sea and land alike, intensifying the blue of the waves, whitening breakers as they rolled towards the shore, and greening the distant hills. Seafoam was closer to the shore than she had been throughout the voyage north, thanks to Astrea's confidence about the location of rocks and reefs, confirmed by Cam's memory and skill as a lookout. A northwest wind came to them off the land, and as Astrea steered them closer, the errant gusts and downdrafts near the cliffs brought them occasional moments when the wind was fragrant with the scent of pines and cedars. Near the headlands the wind can be tricky, Estrella warned as they all moved to counterbalance sea foam in a sudden gust. You can never be sure if there's a puff just waiting to take you aback. We'll douse the big jib, go almost past the gap, come about, and thread the needle on the starboard tack. Will you take the helm, Arneb? The tall man nodded, and they went to work. Under reduced sail, Seafoam danced to a slower rhythm, but still moved much faster than any fishing boat from the village. Astrea knew that on the one hand a more responsive boat would run the gap quicker, on the other any mistake would quickly be fatal. As they approached the first headland, Seafoam's sails darkened in the shadows of the cliff, and the wind no longer blew evenly. "'Cam, can you handle the jib? Damon, stand by the halyards ready to lower the main when we're inside. I've the main sheet, and Lindy's in charge of the brails.' "'The what?' Lindy asked. "'Light cords belayed on the mast. We'll be needing them when we're approaching the village. You pull them, and the sail collapses onto itself.' "'Then, when Damon lets go the halyards—' The sail is bunched together rather than flapping, and all we have to do is to avoid being hit on the head by the boom. Arneb's practiced hand on the tiller kept the boat on course, but Estrella could see that he was apprehensive. As they brought the gap between the headlands abeam, they sailed out of the shadow of the cliffs and into the late afternoon sunlight, pouring through the opening to the fjord. Everyone ready? Going about in a count of three. Two. One. Lee ho, Arneb! The old sailor had no need of instruction from Estrella. With a quick glance over his shoulder, he put the helm a lee at the precise moment when sea foam was on the top of a long wave bearing down into the sunlit gap. The boat's bow rose, steadied, the sails caught wind on the new course, and they surged down the leading edge of the wave, reaching towards the land. A stone's throw away on either side, the wave they were riding smashed into the rocks at the base of the cliffs. Estrella glanced over his shoulder at Arneb. The roar of the breakers making words impossible, he nodded approval of the timing. The wave grew suddenly steeper, and then subsided under them as quickly as it had risen. The wind dropped, momentarily took them from ahead, and then swung behind them. The jib flapped once, Estrella hauled the main sheet taut, and then eased it again. "'A bit more to port, Arneb,' said Estrella. "'We're out of the troubled water now. You're clear to head directly toward the village.' 
the roar of the surf now less than a mutter behind them, they slid across the calm water in an almost eerie silence. From on shore came the regular knocking sound of someone chopping wood. Smoke rose from the chimneys, lamps were already being lit in some of the windows, and along the shore a handful of people tended to the fishing boats tied side by side at the wharf. They looked ahead, each seeing the concentric arcs of cottages in different ways. For Cam, the view was familiar, but its meaning had changed. It was still home, but instead of the ties that might have caused him to remain, he found himself wanting to boast a little to a few people, and then to go back to the more exciting world outside. For Damon, the village was a new experience, a curiosity, perhaps a challenge. Unconsciously he felt at his belt for his knife. Arneb noticed the gesture and resolved to watch for Damon's inclination to provoke violence. Lindy, who had visited more communities than anyone save Arneb, speculated about how growing up in this remote and isolated village compared with her own experience at Matris, and she wondered what Astrea was thinking and feeling. For Astrea, the village was where he had lived since his birth, but so much had happened in the last few months to separate him from his former life that his childhood memories seemed those of a different person. He glanced up towards the cottage where he had been born, saw that no smoke came from its chimney, and had visual proof that his home was empty. Alana was no longer waiting for him. For a moment he was nearly overcome, but immediate problems overshadowed his grief. With difficulty he turned his mind to what he might say about Cygnus' impending arrival to people who had never seen a ship from the outside world. Lindy saw Astrea's expression soften and his shoulders sag. Then he stood taller, and the muscles of his jaw tensed. Watching the changes flow over his face and posture, she intuited his internal struggle. Part of her wanted to stretch out her hands to smooth away his grim look as he wrestled with memories at which she could only guess, but she held back from intervening because she knew that he needed to master his internal conflict by himself. Seven, eight, nine, they're all here, said Cam, and Molly's outboard like usual. We'll go in on the jib, said Estrella. Lindy, brail up, Damon, strike the main. Arneb, take her alongside the outboard boat, if you please. Only the wharf and the cluster of fishing boats were still in sunlight, as sea foam slid through the water toward the shadowed village in almost complete silence. The jib flapped gently as they came alongside. Arneb produced a couple of fenders from under the stern counter. Estrella and Cam grabbed the molly's gunnels, leaned over to drop lines around cleats, and sea-foam became a part of the interlinked boats rafted together at the wharf. As they set about lowering the jib and making a neat parcel of the mainsail along the boom, a voice came for the molly. "'My shattered oath! It's Straya!' "'Ian!' exclaimed Astrea. Red Ian leaned over from the molly's cockpit, his huge hand grabbed Astrea's, and they grinned at each other, the one in surprise, the other in relief, at the enthusiastic greeting. "'And Cam, too! And you brought the lass with you! Lindy, I'm right glad to see all of you!' "'Ian, this is Arneb, and this is his boat. That's my friend Damon.' They exchanged nods of greeting. 
"'Where are me manners?' said Redian. "'Come aboard, come aboard me boat. "'We'll go ashore together. "'Pearl's waitin' supper. "'Twill be a feast.' "'Pearl?' Estrella asked. "'That's right, Drea. "'We was handfasted less than a month ago, "'when I got me boat.' "'You're a skipper now, Red,' Cam asked. "'Too right, Cam. "'When Jack was no more, the skippers decided, "'roaring Jack's dead,' Estrella asked incredulously. "'Tis true, Estrella. "'And a sad ending it was. "'I wouldn't have wanted to get me own boat this way, "'but they saw I'd brought her home, "'and they needed someone to keep her catching fish for the village. "'So here I am. "'Best part of it is, Angus gave Pearl and me his blessing, "'and we was wed.' "'I'm happy for you,' said Estrella. "'But isn't five of us a bit much if Pearl's waiting for you?' "'And you so newly wed,' added Lindy. Red Ian blushed all the way to his red hair. "'Come and meet her, anyway, and we'll take it from there.' They finished settling sea-foam for the night, and then followed Red Ian from boat to boat to shore. When they reached the wharf, they found a growing crowd of villagers waiting in the lengthening shadow of the western hills. The crew of Seafoam formed a group around Estrella. The villagers clustered ahead of them at a cautious distance, bridged only by Red Ian's enthusiasm. The big man clapped Estrella on the shoulder and proceeded to introduce the others. Estrella heard his name repeated by many voices in tones of amazement. Skippers and crewmen alike assessed Arneb's unflinching gaze with cautious respect and cast curious glances at Seafoam, some of them remarking on the height of her mast. Women and girls stood apart, whispering. Estrella knew the people who were staring at him, but the evening light turned them into silhouettes, and he could not read their expressions. He frowned in an attempt to see the shadowed eyes of the skippers, unaware that this was making him look older and more forbidding than they remembered him. He had completely forgotten the effect of the black clothes he was wearing, and he had no way of knowing how much his stance and movements had been altered by life aboard Cygnus. He wondered whether they would take him seriously. He had no idea that they were wondering at how commanding he had become. Red Ian beckoned the skippers, who shook hands with Estrella and Arneb. Most of them did so with a good grace, but Estrella saw that some were noticeably hesitant and unsure about meeting a villager who they had thought dead, and who had returned, barely recognizable as the person they'd known as a boy. He saw their eyes scanning the crew of sea-foam, and understood that they were looking askance at Lindy, because they knew that men fished and women kept house, and so they were uncomfortable about a girl sailing with four men. There was no question that they were all wary of the strangers, especially the one with the scarred face. Estrella guessed that even Cam seemed to them changed, almost as if he had added to his height. Most of all, he felt their eyes staring at him as he took a deep breath to begin his message of warning. Skarm appeared through the villagers, shook Estrella's hand, nodded to Red Ian and Arneb, and turned to face the skippers, all of whom seemed to be waiting for something to happen, and he seized the moment. "'Well, now,' "'I don't have to be telling you that a young Strayer and all these people haven't come here by chance. There's sure to be words that need to be said and heard, and this isn't the place for them nor the time. If we were all comfortable, 'twould make things a whole lot easier.' 
seeing as how our house is a good-sized room,' Red Ian began. "'Which is fair, seeing as how you're a good-sized skipper,' Cam interrupted. Faces softened, and there were even a few chuckles. "'Well, there's room for skippers, anyway. You can all come round to me house, and we'll talk with Straya, Cam, and their friends.' Pearl made her way through the crowd to Red Ian's side. Estrella noticed changes in her face and bearing from when he had sketched her portrait months before. Her strawberry-blonde hair was now braided up, as befitted a married woman in the village, and though she was the youngest wife of the youngest skipper, she had the look of a person who had become someone of importance. Only Lindy noticed that Pearl flinched when Red Ian invited the skippers to their house. A rotund woman bustled up behind Pearl and threw her arms around Estrella, hugging him to her ample bosom. "'That's Jack's wife, Molly!' "'Oh, Estrella," said Molly tearfully, "'and there's no Alanna to welcome you home!' Estrella submitted to the embrace in silence, unable to ask the questions in his mind, some of which he did not want to have answered. "'This is Lindy.' he said as he was released. Molly tipped her head to look back and forth between them. She nodded, whispered to Pearl that she would be back with food and drink, grabbed Lindy's arm, tucked it in hers, and led her away up the path. Estrella saw Lindy turn towards him, raise her eyebrows, and shrug. If the situation had not been so fraught, he would have chuckled. The most independent and well-travelled woman he had ever met had just been scooped up and led away by a plump, middle-aged housewife who had never been more than three hours' walk from her door. The crowd on the wharf thinned, most returning to their homes, leaving a dozen skippers and a few older crew members to find their way to Red Ian's home. The newest skipper led the way, his big hand affectionately on Estrella's shoulder, and Scarm in step at his side. "'How did Roaring Jack die?' Estrella asked. "'Twas a sudden, sad thing,' said Red Ian. "'Sad, but not so sudden, considering what we'd seen,' said Scarm. "'All the skippers and old hands knew that Jack hadn't been right for some time. "'But we all thought he'd get it out of his system, like with the first trip south. "'But then, when he came back without you, Estrella, and then when—' "'And then when Alana was—was—' "'Done in by Yan,' said Cam, who was following close behind. "'Yes, well—' He didn't know that then, nor believed it later. Jack was getting confused, like he was when, when, when the bunch of you sailed north without us, said Cam. True, Scarm acknowledged, and neither Ian nor I can be proud of that. We shoulda, began Red Ian. But we didn't, said Scarm. We couldn't. He was skipper. "'but then it got worse. "'Jack drank his way home, "'and when he got to the village, he "'just about the first thing he did "'was to take a swing at Molly.' "'At Molly?' "'I don't think it was the first time, Estrella, "'but it must have been the worst.' "'And the last,' added Redian. "'We all nobbled him right smart, "'and we was planning to sober him up "'and talk to him in the morning, "'but he broke out of Scarm's house and ran. "'We followed him up to his favourite spot.' on the southern headland. He fell. Jumped? Cam asked. He weren't pushed, said Red Ian. Lost his footing, said Scarm, 
and there's not much else being said about it, nor about how Alanna died, he added meaningfully as they reached the door of Red Ian's home. Estrella remembered drawing the big red-haired skipper as he slept, and then how they had dashed back and forth catching the sheets of birch bark from flying off the cliff top down to where the waves smashed into the rocks below. There could be no surviving a fall from that height. "'Come in, Strayer, and your friends.' Pearl welcomed them into her lamp-lit front room, which, though large for a village home, was soon filled with men, a few of whom found places to sit on benches at either side of the fireplace, and on stools and chairs at the big family table. Most stood more or less awkwardly around the room, eyeing the cups and mugs that Pearl had set out on the table, which Red Ian was soon filling from a little barrel he produced from a cupboard. Heartened by the scent of strong whisky, the skippers waited with growing enthusiasm. When Ian and Pearl had made sure that everyone had his share, and those who had been served first were looking thoughtfully into their mugs, wondering how long it would be until they could politely begin to drink, Red Ian cleared his throat meaningfully and stood to his full height. Estrella noticed that the big man had chosen his spot with care, to avoid the beams in the ceiling that had kept him ducking as he passed out the mugs. "'Welcome to me home, and a toast of welcome to Strayer, Cam, and their friends.' Mugs and glasses rose by a few fingers' width, in acknowledgment of Red Ian's good-hearted words, but as all the cups continued on to lips, Estrella saw that their hearts were not in the gesture. After waiting a judicious moment for everyone to swallow, and then take the deep breath that was necessary when drinking village whisky, Skarm took charge of the meeting. "'So then, Estrella, would you care to speak?' Estrella, who had done little more than sniff at his mug, took a step forward. He had been rehearsing version after version of what he wanted to say so many times over the course of the voyage north, that now he faced the village skippers there were too many possible ways to begin. He started to speak with his mind almost a blank. "'It's good to see all of you,' he said. Estrella meant what he said, but as he said it he knew that they did not believe him. He glanced from face to face and saw little warmth. Although they were looking at him, their eyes would not meet his. Estrella knew that they were seeing a black-haired youth wearing outlandish clothes, a stranger, whose life among them for seventeen years had been eclipsed by all that had happened since he had left only months ago. However, he had spoken truthfully and from the heart, and he could only continue to do so however his words might be misunderstood. There's a great ship in the offing. Once my father sailed in her, and in those days his father was master. My father's brother, my cousin, now commands her. And he's one of the bastards what ain't to be trusted, interjected Cam. Frowns greeted the interruption, and Cam stepped back, his hands silently apologizing to Estrella for having broken into his account. He's the man who kidnapped me so that my grandfather could teach me to be one of them, the family commanding the last of the ships that remain after more than three generations continuously at sea. He paused as murmurs of incredulity came from some of the skippers. That's the right of it. There are such ships, said Scarn. Strayer's telling you the truth, said Redian. I've stood on the deck of two of them and fought again the master of one of them. 
Murmurs and whispers rose and fell. When the room was quiet again, Astraea continued. My father was, and I am part of that family. But my father called Estrea, whom you called the stranger, was ashamed to tell you what they had become, and never had the chance to warn me. I, too, was ashamed when I found that the great ships survived through piracy and the theft of men, women, and children from villages along the coast. They tried to drown Estrea, said Damon. There's a lot worse than that said Estrella. Lindy comes from a village robbed of its sons by one of the great ships. When Roaring Jack led us south, Scarm, Ian, Yan, and I saw all that remains of a village where men came ashore, killed, and burnt the bodies of those they had murdered. Arneb is the last man alive from that massacre. A skipper with shining white hair spoke from a corner of the room. "'And we're supposed to thank you for leading these relatives of yours all the way to us?' "'No, Silverdon, that's not the way it is at all at all,' said Cam. "'Strayer's trying to warn you, so your bad stuff won't happen.' "'How are they going to get here?' Silverdon asked. "'Because they have the landfall sketches, the markings, that Roaring Jack had me do,' said Estrella. "'You gave them a picture of the gap?' "'No, of course not,' said Lindy. She sat down a basket with a thump on the kitchen table as she spoke. "'Hush now,' Molly said to her, as she closed the kitchen door behind her with a shove of her broad posterior. "'That's man-talk!' "'That's foolish talk if they think that Estrella's to blame,' Lindy said to her as she strode out from behind the table. "'He grew up among you. He's one of you, as was his father. Not one of you can tell me anything bad or evil about him without lying.' Along with all the men in the room, Estrella stared at her. Molly had found her a calf-length blue dress and a smocked white blouse, which she wore in the manner of women of the village. However, her stance, her steady, blue-eyed look, and her forthright interruption took the skippers aback, forcing them to attend to what she said, despite their preconceptions about the roles of men and women. All of them were accustomed to discussing important matters of food, family, and fishing, with wives, mothers, and even daughters, who did not always agree with them. But none of their women had ever stood up to an assembly of the men who led the village by right of their position as skippers. "'You tell em, Lindy,' said Cam. "'You have to listen to Estrella," said Lindy. "'We can't be more than half a day ahead of Cygnus,' Damon and Arneb murmured agreement. Subtly the crew of Seafoam drew together— and the skippers began to understand that even the tall man with the scarred face was in agreement. Most of them took a second look at Estrella. He hoped that perhaps some saw beyond his black hair, jacket, and boots to the young man they had known, albeit matured by more than just the passage of time since Roaring Jack had chosen him as crew. Then he saw that they all returned to focus on Lindy, who, despite her sex, was persuasive to several of them. Had she still been wearing the borrowed man's clothes from the voyage, the skippers might have dismissed her as a freakish stranger. But dressed in familiar clothes, more blonde than the fairest young woman in the village, and as direct as any wife or daughter talking in private, even though they wanted to dismiss what she said because she was a young woman, they could not ignore her challenge to take the situation seriously. "'So what is it you're telling us to do, Strayer?' Skarm asked. "'Stay out of their reach,' said Cam. 
They don't know the waters. They won't try the gap in their great ship. Wait them out. Winter's coming, and they'll have to leave. You'll have to watch out, because they'll be waiting for you out there in the ocean, and when your boats come out the gap, they'll pounce, said Damon. You could block the gap with a boom, said Arneb. The skippers looked at the three of them in turn, and then at each other. Fight them, said Estrella firmly into the silence. Don't wait till they come ashore to murder, kidnap, and destroy the village. There was a long pause as the skippers glanced wordlessly at each other, trying to grapple with so many strange things at the same time. The silence deepened. Estrella understood the skipper's bewilderment, which was not just that they had been offered four different plans, but also because they were striving to comprehend what was outside their experience. They could imagine death caused by the impersonal, inscrutable ocean. They faced it regularly. They could not imagine fighting people they had never seen. Estrella understood, because until recently neither could he, and the thought was repugnant to him. He glanced at Lindy, and it was as if she had repeated the words she had spoken the day they had met. Force can be a reasonable response if used for self-protection or to avert imminent violence. He stood just a little taller, unaffected by the looks he was receiving. "'We can take em, said Reddy, and suddenly. "'Me and Jack cleared the deck of one such, just the two of us. "'Gainst the fleet, they got no chance.' "'Surprise and luck won't be with you this time,' said Lindy. Silence returned. Skarm took a step forward, positioning himself so that he could see both the skippers and the crew of Seafoam. He spoke in a calm, measured voice. "'You've given us things to think about, Estrella, and your friends, too. But now the skippers need to talk among themselves. You should make yourself at home in my house, along with the men in your crew. Molly, if you would see to the lass—' For a moment Estrella thought that Lindy would challenge Skarn. She was as angry as she had been at Mattress, but this time she turned away. She strode back to the kitchen and out the back door, Molly whispering at her elbow. Without looking to see what Cam, Damon, and Arneb might do, Estrella followed the two women out into the night. In four quick strides he caught up with Lindy. "'They can't help the way they are, Lindy,' he said. "'I know that, Estrella,' she snapped. "'I know only too well. "'They have to talk together with no women or strangers "'who might know enough to tell them what to do. "'They can't ask questions, "'because to do so would reveal that they really don't understand what's happening. "'They haven't a plan. "'They don't know how to make one. "'And they won't talk to the people who could help them.' "'Red Ian had a plan. "'That's not a plan. "'It's lunacy, and you know it.' "'It's all we've got, Lindy.' There isn't time. Then we'd better tell the women and children to head for the hills, Estrella, because that's their only chance of survival. Molly plucked at Lindy's sleeve, and she followed her up the path into the darkness. Estrella felt as if the top of his head would explode. He stared after Lindy, suddenly as furious as if she had hit him in the mouth. Only moments before he had felt that she was supporting him. Now she dismissed his advice, and with it, Red Ian, the only skipper who had any experience of the world beyond the village. He watched her climbing the path with Molly beside her whispering something he could not hear. 
Eventually, their lantern dimmed to a flicker between trees in the distance. Damon's voice came from the darkness behind him. "'Where are we?' "'Cam, you know, cause you live here. And Estrella's got his creepy green bracelet to guide him, but I can't see a thing.' "'Hold on, Damon,' said Cam. A candle spluttered into light, casting wavering shadows on the grey wood and stone of Red Ian's house, and lighting the green tips of branches on spruce trees beside the path. Cam led the way up the beginning of the hill and across the bridge to Scarm's house on the south side of the stream. Inside they lit lamps to find the cots and pallets that Scarm kept for visitors who had talked too far into the night. There was little said among them. They were all tired and hungry from a demanding sail northwards, and let down that after all their effort the villagers were not responding to their warning. Astrea felt the weight of conflicting responsibilities and ties to the village, to his friends, and in a very special way to Lindy. When he thought of her, it was as if he became two people, one who yearned to be close to her, and another who was still angry that she had dismissed as futile what he saw as the only possible course of action. As he blew out the last candle and rolled a blanket around him, he expected to spend the rest of the night staring into the darkness, frustrated and worrying, but physical tiredness won out, and he fell asleep in moments. "'Wake up, Dramon, with Cygnus in sight!' Adramin sat up and grunted, rubbed his good hand across his face, and peered over the gunwale of the longboat. Now what? Duck behind a headland? Risky. Sweet spirit of Zubin's first wife, innkeeper, at this point what isn't? You want to take us into that? Adramin looked shorewards and appreciated the force of Walt's question. An almost continuous line of breakers growled at the foot of cliffs that stretched as far ahead as they could see. The previous day they had seen occasional breaks where a bay, a point, or an island offered a promise of calmer water behind them, but the morning had caught them between Cygnus and a particularly inhospitable section of coastline. "'Maybe he'll think we're a fishboat,' said Adramin hopelessly. "'Right, and that's why he's heading straight for us,' said Walt. "'Sorry you came. It's an improvement on bleeding to death.' but not by a lot. Fine, then. We'll just pretend that we didn't notice a three-masted, schooner-rigged, bloody great ship bearing down on us like some kind of avenging spirit of darkness. We could rig the— Not a chance. Never get it up in time with only three hands between us. And even if we could, we wouldn't be able to handle it. I'd rather take me chances aboard Cygnus than swimming into the breakers. Well, then, when you see an opportunity, take her alongside. Though I don't know how we're going to be able to pick up the recovery lines. Adramin paused to look at what he had once thought of as his ship, noticing the differences between how he would have sailed her and the press of sail she carried under Mofred's command. Maybe he'll run us down, he went on calmly, as if speculating on the likelihood of rain. Or maybe not. You never can tell. Walt grimaced at Adamin's defeatist attitude. "'I'm counting on his curiosity.' "'Wonderful. So glad you have it all planned and taken care of.' Walt understood that Adamin's cynicism bordered on despair and did not answer. 
Cygnus swooped down on the longboat, two sailors shinned down the recovery lines and attached them while the exhausted pair in the longboat watched. The boat was hoisted aboard with them in it, and four sailors hauled them onto the deck. Neither struggled. Adramin because he was unable, Walt because he saw no point in being beaten up by a virtually inexhaustible supply of adversaries. He climbed out of the longboat, shrugged off the hands holding him, and stood, arms folded, waiting until Mufred decided to inspect him. The two sailors holding Adramin let go of his arms, and he almost fell. When he slumped to the deck and half sat, half lay, they exercised the thin compassion of leaving him alone. Walt stood like a sawn-off statue, taking in everything around him. He noticed subtle signs that the three different crews in the same ship were still far from unified. He nodded to a couple of the men who he had spoken to on the brief trip for spars and cordage, and saw acknowledgment in their eyes, even though they did not dare speak with Mufrid only a few paces away, striding up and down, Astraea's sketches in one hand. Walt saw Mufrid stop, hold up a drawing, and compare it with the shoreline ahead. "'Can't you read the land's landfall markings?' Walt asked, unabashed by the men around him. "'What do you know about them, innkeeper?' "'Enough to be sure he wouldn't draw the way into his own home port.' "'Why not?' "'Because he wouldn't need to, you poor fish. "'But he'd draw the nearest pointers that he could see his home port from.' "'Mufrid gave Walt a thoughtful stare. "'And might you have anything more to tell me, perhaps for a price?' "'Can't haggle at a distance, can we?' Mufrid waved away the sailors guarding Walt, and he made his ungainly way to where Mufrid stood. "'Let's have a look, and we'll see what we can see together,' said Walt companionably. "'Traitor!' Adramin's voice was not much more than a whisper, but it was enough to cause Mufrid to glance at where he lay. Quick as thought, Walt snatched the sketches from Mufrid's hands and tossed them into the air where they fluttered almost lazily in the updraft from the sails before whirling into the ship's wake. Before they disappeared over the rail, Mufrid's knife was out of its sheath and on its way toward Walt's midriff, but before it could spill entrails on the deck, Walt's huge hand closed on Mufrid's wrist, twisting his arm, hand, and knife so that they menaced their owner's face. "'Now, let's discuss this here situation calmly,' Walt began. Mufrid's left hand swung up to wrestle two-handed against Walt's grip, but Walt's other hand arrived on top, forcing Mufrid's hand onto his own blade. Blood oozed through the confused knot of hands. "'Let him go, innkeeper!' Mirak's voice beside Walt's ear was as cold as the blade at his throat. Slowly, regretfully, Walt loosened his grip and moved back from Mufrid. The knife fell between them. "'Commendable effort, innkeeper,' said Mufrid, inspecting the cut on his hand, "'but ineffective, and one you will live to regret. Not that you'll live very long, mark you, but you will certainly regret fervently. Did you think you were telling me something I didn't know?' Had you looked at the land instead of the sketches, you might have seen a band of smoke just below the line of hills inside the cliffs. 
There was a pause while Walt and Mufrid glared at each other as blood dripped from his fingers. Merak, get those two down to the cabin, tie them up for my attention in the near future, and prepare a longboat. You're going ashore. At your command. Mirak's instant reply was swiftly followed by two sailors pinning Walt's arms painfully behind his back, while two others essentially carried Adramin down into what had been Oron's cabin. Mirak personally saw that the cords binding them to the chairs were secure. Adramin revived somewhat as the boat commander bent over him. Mirak, why did you go over to him? Orders is orders, as you know, Mirak replied evenly as he left the cabin. Adramin slumped despondently in his chair. "'What was all that about?' Walt asked. "'Nothing.' "'Talk, Drummin. You might as well. Keeps your mind from going a little sad.' "'A little sad? Mirak left me to die, after all I was going to do for him.' "'When?' "'When I got command. And, uh, when would that be?' There was a long pause. When Adramin spoke again, it was softly, pleadingly, as if to justify himself. "'I found Estrella, and then Oron favoured him. So I had to stop him from getting ahead of me.' "'Ho, ho!' said Walt. "'So you, um, uh, made life difficult for him.' Mirak showed him the ropes, some of them, same way I told him the traditions. "'I get it, but only some of them, right?' "'Just enough to get him into trouble.' "'Yes,' said Adramin miserably. "'But it didn't work. "'He was—he was—he was too lucky. "'And then when Oron died, "'Mirak had the idea to discredit Estrella in front of the crew "'by making it look as if he'd stolen command. "'I tried to tell you about it so that it sounded like my idea. "'But it wasn't.' "'But you went on trying to get ahead when the two ships mixed it up with a fishboat, didn't you?' "'I found crew that Cygnus needed. I was sure Mufred would kill Estrella, and then he'd need me, and then I could work a deal, balancing the crew between the ships. It was all working, until Estrella near took Mufred, and then I flung him over the side,' Walt interrupted, checking himself from pointing out the flaws in Adramin's account. "'You gave me the idea.' "'So that's why you had me chuck Estrella into the sea.' "'That, and I thought that if I got rid of him, everything would change. "'And it did. "'But it changed to bad. "'And now it's going to get even worse, thanks to you. "'I should never have listened to you. "'Hopeful little ray of sunshine, ain't you?' "'The cabin door opened behind them, "'and as Adramin cringed in his chair, "'Mufrid faced them across his cabin table,' toying with a knife in one hand, the other in a glove that did not quite cover a bandage. "'I have to give you some credit for seamanship,' he remarked blandly. "'I can't say the same for your intelligence. You could have sheltered behind an island, or even taken your chances close to the cliffs, but instead you just kept going. Were you tired? Or were you so afraid of the big wide sea that you had to get back aboard my ship even though the last time you lost a finger?' Did you want me to do your other hand? Stupid. But what can you expect from a thief and an innkeeper? A whole lot more than you think, muttered Walt. Mufrid shot him a glance that assessed the contrast between Walt's aggressive calm 
and Adrimin's beaten expression. Two of you, only three hands. Hm. Tell me, exactly what were you planning to do? Take over a ship with a full crew under my command? They're not your crew, said Adrimin bitterly, and, and your goons all abandoned ship when they thought you were dead, so the rest will— What? Obey you? The crew of Cygnus obeyed orders from Oron. You were just the mouthpiece, all you ever could be, lubber. The crew obeys family. Me. Why is that? Walt asked. Just curious, you understand. Family. Blood. Honour. Nothing you or this snivelling would know anything about. He never was part of the unbroken bloodline from Zubin through Oron, each son maintaining the family honour. The family honour that you broke when you betrayed Estrea and Gianfar. Adraman's accusation was delivered softly, while staring hopelessly at his own feet. Fine sentiments from a spineless upstart, picked for his looks. I followed my duty, and informed the Grand Master that a scheming, mutinous traitor and his oath-breaking cousin were plotting to put us all ashore, turn us into lubbers, pollute our bloodline, bring back the pestilence, end the continuous family honour that— <sighs> Mufred searched for words. You trade ashore? You kidnap men? Adramin interrupted. For the good of the fleet! "'For the family!' His voice was so intense that Walt, who had been irresolutely calm, looked at him in surprise. Mufred's face had coloured a deep and unhealthy red. "'Well, then, maybe it's you and me that should be talking. Duh!' Mufred glared at him, a pulse throbbing at his temple. "'Oron was right,' he muttered. "'Polluted. Misbegotten. "'What about Estrella?' Estrella's son. He looked like a good specimen to me, said Walt. Quick, too. Mufred looked at Walt, his colour fading to something close to normal. He nodded thoughtfully. I can use him. He's got the power. More than Debbie. More than you, said Adramin. Mufred's fingers twitched, poising his knife-blade uppermost. Too bad he ain't around no more, said Walt. Where is he? Dramin had me deep-six him. He what? Over the side and into the salt chuck. You know how it's done. Mufred's hand closed on the knife so tightly that his knuckles whitened. He breathed in, held his breath, and then let it out slowly. When he spoke, his voice was flat, smooth as oil on water, but the pulse in his temple told of his struggle to remain in control. Yes. Well... What a pity. A long way to go for a disappointment. I had hoped to persuade Estrella's precocious pup into taking a useful place as a junior member of the family with prospects for advancement. So now what shall I do? I know. I'll make you, Adramin, suffer more than you can imagine. At my leisure and pleasure, and certainly not yours which entertainment should be instructive for the monster beside you, because if he cooperates, there's profit in it for him, 
which, as an innkeeper, I'm sure is within his limited mental grasp. But first I have to leave you two gentlemen. The sun is up, and it's time for Mirac to offer that miserable little fishing village a chance to provide me with fish, furs, mast timber, and young, healthy, and reasonably handy crew, and also to inform them of what will happen to all of them if they don't comply with my requests. As and when they recognize the seriousness of their predicament and cooperate, then this little excursion northwards won't have been a complete waste of time. Mufrid negligently slid his knife back into its sheath, walked around the table, hit Adramin's bandaged hand with his fist, and strode out of the cabin. Does he often talk like that? Walt asked. Only when he's planning to do something really unpleasant. And soon he slumped sideways in his chair and closed his eyes. Walt's chair creaked. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit estreatrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.